The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Okay, let's go ahead and open our Bibles, and we'll go to 1 Corinthians 6. And I do want to, just a brief update for those of you who haven't been with us. We're going through the letter to 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul wrote to this city in Corinth. It's over by Athens, and it was a, a pagan city, and Paul went in there as he was church planting, traveling to many cities, and he preached the gospel there and got some resistance, but also got some uh, favorable responses. People came to the Lord, and eventually he had enough folks where he established a church there in the city of Corinth uh, in the early 50s A.D., and he actually ended up staying there for a year and a half as their pastor, and then he went and left the church and continued to plant other churches, beginning in Ephesus and other places. And a, a couple of years have gone by now since Paul uh, planted this church in Corinth and was with them. And he began to get word through different people in the church uh, that there were problems arising in the church at Corinth. Um, and there were problems with um, holiness and morality. Probably one of the biggest problems he kept hearing about was division in the church where individual members were squabbling with each other and being divided into groups and cliques, and it became widespread that it was even noticeable, probably to their culture immediately around them. And there were many compromises going on in that church that no doubt the unbelievers in Corinth could see these things going on in this Christian church, and that became uh, a stumbling block and a horrible testimony of Christ to the unbelieving world. Uh, but the problems in Corinth re uh, reached such a fever pitch that it needed immediate attention from Paul. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter from a distance, Actually, he wrote one letter already to the Corinthians. We don't have that letter, and we don't know all the details of it, but Paul does make reference to it. Um, they did not fully comply or respond to that first letter, so Paul had to write this next letter, which is 1 Corinthians for us. And it's a long letter. He goes on for, in our English Bible, 16 chapters. And like I said, probably the biggest problem was the bad attitudes that the Corinthian Christians had towards one another. And that was a result of having the wrong attitude about themselves. They were uh, overly self-confident in themselves. They thought they were all-knowing, many of them anyway. And so they were conceited. And that's why Paul says several times in the first four chapters, you are puffed up, you are arrogant, you think too highly of yourself. He just kept repeating that word, puffed up and arrogant. And so they were blinded by their own self-centeredness and their own sin as they focused on themselves. And they were so myopic and focusing on themselves that they couldn't see the world around them and they couldn't see what was going on with their brother or sister sitting next to them. So much so that even in the church, while they're so focused on themselves and elevating themselves and actually talking about how great and wise they are and even publicly denigrating the Apostle Paul saying that he wasn't so wise after all, so they prided themselves on their wisdom, and especially their spiritual wisdom. While they're doing that, singing this cacophony of voices about how great they are and spiritually wise they are, there are things going on in the church that are blatantly obvious, that should have been dealt with, that were totally neglected as Christians. And so Paul writes this letter and points out, starting in chapter 5 on, that how ironic you think you are so wise and so intelligent and so superior spiritually yet the church is imploding and exploding in your face, and you're not doing anything about it. It's shameful. So the Apostle Paul, their pastor, and their spiritual daddy, as we learned earlier, has to rebuke them, call them to repentance, 
Uh, it's his shepherdly duty. And so that's the nature and the tone of these last few chapters. They have been chapters of rebuke and calling them to repentance, these Christians. By the way, we are now in chapter 6. Uh, the first four chapters, Paul had to come on strong about their arrogance and their pride and their divisions in the church and their factions. Then he transitioned from there to an issue in chapter 5 we already talked about, and that was sexual immorality of a case of incest in the church that was public and everybody knew about it, and yet not apparently not one Corinthian Christian in the church lifted a finger to deal with it, to hold them accountable, to expose it, to go through church discipline. So Paul came on strong there and rebuked them for that compromise in the area of sexual immorality. And now he goes on to chapter 6, and he's taking up another prominent issue that is widespread, and apparently many people knew about it, so much so that Paul heard about it from a distance, and he's going to expose this issue as well and confront them and call them to repentance. And this is on another practical matter in the life of the Corinthians. And the issue going on here was in 1 Corinthians 6, after he addresses the morality issue, he transitions very quickly into the next issue. It's like he's got a checklist of things that he needs to address with expediency about their compromised living. And so there's a quick transition into chapter 6 where he confronts them of their bad attitudes towards one another and defrauding each other by taking each other to court and suing each other as Christians. So that's the context of chapter 6, 1 through 11. Let's go ahead and look at it. The title of this sermon is Quit Suing Each Other! Exclamation point. Quit suing each other, because that's a great summary of what Paul is saying to them. Let's go ahead and read it. Starting at verse 1. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Does any one of you... When he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we, as Christians, shall judge angels? How much more? Matters of this life. If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? The brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather just be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brother. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Quit suing each other. Many people like practical application from sermons. So, so periodically I'll get a question. So what's the, how do I apply this pastor? What's the practical application of this sermon? I put it in the title, make it easier for you. 
quit suing each other. Boy, if you just walk away with that, bing, you got the essence of what Paul's talking about. As I'm thinking about this theme, imagine they live in a culture. By the way, the Greek and Roman culture in which the Corinthian Christians lived was a litigious culture already, meaning people were suing. They had law courts. They had judges. They had plaintiffs. They had juries. They had so-called laws that ruled over the stuff. And it was commonplace to be suing each other in Greece and in Rome. And in the days of Paul, it was very common that a lot of people were suing each other all the time. And here, this was 2,000 years ago. I'm thinking about America today. We live in one of the most litigious cultures in the history of the world uh, here in America. Everybody's suing other people all the time, and other people are getting sued all the time, and uh, that's just commonplace, to be suing people and taking them to court, whether it's small claims court or uh, bigger courts. Suing people is just a way of life in America. You could say it's the American way of life, suing your neighbor. How appropriate. We would have a passage like this that is still relevant to us today that is 2,000 years old. The Bible is still relevant. It is alive because people don't change. That's why the Bible is so practical. People don't change. God knows people. God knows sinners. God knows human behavior. And so we have the solutions to everyday life and all of our questions in the Bible. And when it comes to our attitudes towards other people and trying to recoup our losses and even trying to illegitimately uh, recoup things that belong to other people that don't belong to us through the law system and through court, God has a rebuke very practically and specifically for us in his word. Those of you who are old enough may remember this phrase. It was on a popular television show, at least when I was growing up. I watched it all the time. I love the show. I grew up as an unbeliever, and so this was one of, my, one of my favorite shows, actually. And it ended always with this statement. Don't take matters into your own, tans, own hands. Take them to court. What was that? That was Judge Wapner, the people's court. Uh, if you don't remember Judge Wapner, maybe you know all these other 50 zillion judges on TV today from, uh, I can't even remember all their Judge Joe Black and blah, 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 blah. Uh, those are all actually a spin-off of everybody trying to be like Judge Judy. Uh, she's like the best, in my opinion, and she's, if you haven't watched Judge Judy, you need to watch Judge Judy. I, I'm afraid, I fear Judge Judy. And then everybody, and she's just real, she's not trying to act, that's why they put her on television. She was in uh, a judge in private practice for 30 years, and she gained such a reputation, they thought, man, we need to film this lady, and then everybody else was kind of trying to be an actor and be Judge Judy. But anyway, long before Judge Judy, there was Judge Wapner in the People's Court, and and I always remember that phrase, don't take matters into your own hands, take them to court. Then I became a Christian when I was in college. Then I started studying the Bible. And then I heard a sermon on 1 Corinthians 6, and for the first time the lights went on about what God thinks about taking people to court, especially believers with believers who have grievances. And God clearly reveals that a Christian should not sue ever another Christian. And then I thought, wow, Judge Wapner, that was bad. He was wrong. That is horrible advice if you think about it. Telling our entire culture, don't take matters into your own hands. Take them to court. And here the Bible says, do not sue one another if you're a Christian. Christians should not sue other Christians ever. That is Paul's big picture argument and imperative in this passage. Let's go ahead and look at it. To kind of break it down and hopefully make it uh, bite-sized and easier for you to see the flow of it, I broke it up into four points there. So we'll just go through those four points. An easy way to divide this, if you wanted to get it into two big chunks, would be verses 1 through 6 is the problem. 
And then verses 7 through 11 is his solution. That's kind of a twofold division. But there is progression in his argument, so that's why I broke it up into four points there. Paul is talking to Christians. He assumes they're Christians. That's an important point. The Corinthian church, they were messed up. They were compromised. They had problems in every area of life. Their sins were from the smallest to the most egregious and gross. And what amazes me is Paul, up to this point in 6th chapter, he never assumes or accuses them of not being Christians. That's very practical for us to think about. Which reminds me once again, as a Christian myself, and as a pastor, that Christians can get involved in sin. No, let me add to that. Christians can get involved in gross, unbelievable sin. We know that from Paul and all the Christians that he dealt with in all of his letters. So, important overriding principle to keep in mind. So let's go ahead and look at this. As Paul's trying to deal with this very difficult, divisive situation of Christians suing other Christians in the Corinthian church. Verses 1 through 3. In light of your authority. Don't sue each other as Christians. In light of your authority, Christians. Starts in verse 1. Does any one of you... So he's, he's assuming he's talking to believers, Christ, Bible-believing Christians who are familiar with the Scriptures. When Paul there was for a year and a half, no doubt he took them through an Old Testament survey class and uh, told them all about Jesus that he knew and the divine revelation that he had. So they had a, a big reservoir of biblical truth and revelation that they could tap into. And so... He starts by asking a question, reminding them of something very basic and something they should know. It's like a no-brainer. By the way, big picture observations in verses 1 through 11. In this discussion, Paul asks nine questions of the Corinthians. Nine. Most of them are in verses 1 through 7. As a matter of fact, there are several questions he just asks in a row. Boom, boom, boom. He starts out this issue by asking a question. What is Paul being? He's like the interrogator. He's like he's being a lawyer is what he's doing. Oh, you want to take people to court? I'll take you to court. Sit on the witness stand and I'm going to grill you with nine penetrating questions. And that's what he does. So there are nine rhetorical questions in this short passage that Paul asks. And asking questions is practically very helpful in many ways. If you go through the Gospels and read carefully, look at how many times Jesus asked questions. Typically, when some of the Pharisees or Sadducees tried to corner him and they asked him a question, he would respond not by an answer. Many times he would respond with another question. That's why in a court of law, asking questions is absolutely a priority, paramount, and important. And that's why the judge is listening very carefully to the lawyers as they ask their questions. That's why in biblical counseling, rule number one, according to Jay Adams, and I agree with him, is the first thing you do, you don't make a diagnosis. You don't give a solution or a remedy. The first thing you do as the biblical counselor is, you ask questions and listen to the answers and ask more questions and ask cross-examining questions and write down the data and get the facts. You're fact-collecting. So asking questions is absolutely vital for many things. It's number one, bringing you up to speed, getting the information, getting the data. Another thing that it does is it helps you make a diagnosis of the problem. It also helps you expose the problem, especially exposing inconsistencies. Somebody who is not telling the truth, if you ask them enough questions, it will become very clear that they were lying. Because with all your questions, it's like, well, wow, your answers don't add up. They are an antithetical to one another. 
You, man, I think you must be bluffing or, or lying somewhere. So asking questions exposes inconsistencies in thinking, in words spoken, and in actions. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's got nine questions. So he goes right for the juggler with these sinning Corinthian Christians, whoever they were that were sinning other or suing other believers. He says, does anyone among you uh, Christians here in the Corinthian church, when he has a case against his neighbor, when he has an issue against a fellow neighbor, when he has a, a civil problem or disagreement with a fellow Christian, a case against, when you have a problem, a matter, uh, a dispute with another brother, that could be on a legal level. That's what he's talking about. And these were not big cases, by the way. These were small, petty, mundane cases and grievances against one another. This wasn't like committing murder. or These were not criminal offenses at all. We know that from the end of verse 2 where he said they are the smallest issues. That's the word he used. These are little. These are small. These are petty. These are mundane. These are not life-changing. These can be absorbed simply through communication and forgiveness with one another. Have you tried that? So that's the nature of these cases that he's hearing about. Oh, you're having disputes? Tell me about it. Oh, that's pathetic. Really? Christians are squabbling about that? You're trying to sue each other over that? So that's the, the tone. That's the nuance of what he's trying to get at. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare? In other words, this is just categorically clear in Paul's mind. This should not be happening. I can't believe I'm having to address this issue. Any of you dare to go to law? You mean you're suing other believers, which was a sin and a major compromise, but it was compounded with another sin. First of all, you're suing each other. Not only that, but it's before the unrighteous. The word Paul uses here is the unjust. What's a judge supposed to be? First and foremost, just. Understand the law, fair with the law, fair with each person and each party unbiased, unprejudiced, and Paul's saying, I you're going to corrupt courts, you're going to godless courts, you're going to godless, unjust, unfair, shallow, human, non-supernaturally thinking unbelievers to settle the matters between two courts. Really? Paul is aghast. This is a rhetorical question. It demands the answer in its question. I cannot believe that you are going to court suing each other and you're doing it before an unrighteous judge. And you're not going before the saints. What a contrast. The saints, that's the word for holy ones. What is God first and foremost? He is holy, holy, holy. And so God makes a huge contrast here between unbelieving judges who are unrighteous and unjust. And one of the main reasons they are unjust and unrighteous is because they don't know the God of the universe. They don't know Jesus the Savior. They don't know God's law. They can know things on a human level, but they can't understand things on a supernatural, spiritual, and religious level. They are limited. A judge who is not a believer is limited in the counsel and in the analysis they can give, especially between two believers who may be having a grievance over a spiritual matter. There is no way in the world that an unbelieving judge can referee and mediate over that. Absolutely impossible. And so that's why Paul says it's unbelievable. If you've got disputes with one another, you should be going to, to the holy people in the church, letting the church... Settle your grievances and help you. Verse 2. Uh, one of the correctives that the Corinthians needed was they needed their thinking adjusted again. 
Remember, they had inflated attitudes about themselves and how, er how wise they thought they were. But they also lacked information or they forgot basic information. In this case, it's they forgot very basic information. Well, speaking of legalities, speaking of judging, speaking of going to court, speaking of settling disputes, did, did you forget a very basic reality of the Christian life? That's verse 2. Or do you not know? Or do you not know that phrase? Paul uses that 10 times in the book of Corinthians. He uses it down at verse 9. Or do you not know? Do you not know? That was a rebuke. Jesus did that all the time, that same kind of phrase or question. Let me remind you, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the Scriptures? Do you not know the Scriptures? Or do you not know? Or let me remind you of what you do know is in God's Word. Do you not know that the saints, okay, that's every Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. If you are a Christian, you are a holy one. Isn't that an amazing thought? What a blessed thing to be reminded of. Today, being with God's people. Maybe you had a lousy week. Uh, you were compromised in sin of some sort. You were down in the dumps in terms of your thinking. You were feeling worthless before Almighty, Holy God, and Jesus doesn't love me. And then we are reminded from Scripture that if you are a Christian, you believe in the gospel, you've been born again, then you are a saint from God's point of view. You are holy, holy, holy. You are sinless. Isn't that good news? That is good news of the Christian gospel. And even though the Corinthians have been compromised with sin, and they were, they just looked yucky, dirty, filthy, squabbling with each other, fighting with each other, involved in sexual immorality, uh, neglecting to implement church discipline. Uh, the church was a mess, and yet Paul calls them, you are holy. You're holy people. You've been redeemed by Almighty God. That's who you are. So he's trying to remind them of who they are. Act like you are. Live out who you are. You've forgotten. You are so influenced by the world around you and maybe your past, you've forgotten who you are as a Christian. Do you not know that the saints, all Christians, plural, will judge the world? That is amazing thought. Another question, verse 2, he goes on in the middle of the verse. And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest, petty, little mundane courts of issues going on right now on the earth in the church? Christian, let me tell you. So if you're a Christian today, you are holy. From God's point of view, you are sinless before Almighty God because of Christ's death and resurrection on your behalf. You are holy. I am holy. Saint, and then fill in the, put your name in there. Saint Timothy. Saint Deborah. Saint on and on. Saint Dolores. And on and on. That's who you are. The canonization process already went through when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead on your behalf. So you are a holy one. You are a saint. Not only that, you're going to judge the world. Christians are going to judge the world. And uh, I want to share this with you from a couple of scriptures, and we'll flip through a couple of key passages. But the first is, the first specific reference to it in scripture is in Daniel chapter 7. So if you've got your Old Testament, go to Daniel 7. Jesus picks up on it in the New Testament. Uh, Daniel's towards kind of the back side of your Bible where the prophets are, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Keep going through the major prophets there. Ezekiel, Daniel. Uh, much of Daniel is future. Almost all of it was future from Daniel's point of view in 600 B.C.-ish, 550 B.C. Much of it was fulfilled immediately after Daniel. Uh, some of it is referring to the end times that still hasn't been fulfilled, like the times of the tribulation, the Antichrist at the end of the world that Revelation picks up on, and also the, the second coming of the Messiah, which hasn't happened yet. So in Daniel chapter 7, uh, starting at verse 13, this is a 
a prophecy Daniel has about the end of the age. And he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Okay, that's the coming of Jesus Christ. That hasn't happened yet. That will happen at the end of the age. One like a son of man, that is Jesus. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And what will be given to Jesus in the future at the end of the age? Verse 14, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Actually, he assumed that with the resurrection. In order that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So every human being will submit the knee to King Jesus. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which will not pass away. And his kingdom uh, is one which will not be destroyed. Then he keeps going on in the prophecy. Uh, Then look at verse 22. At the end of the age, just prior to the Messiah coming, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints. So at the end of the age, when Jesus returns, God the Father will bless Jesus, give him the kingdom at the end of the age, and not only give the kingdom to Jesus the Messiah, but judgment, verse 22, was passed in favor of the saints, in favor of the holy ones. If you are a believer, if you're a Christian now, you will be rewarded in the future at the end of the age with judgment authority and judgment ability. Co-reigning, co-ruling, co-judging with Jesus Christ himself. That's what 22 is talking about. In favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. There's going to be some, a time in the future where Jesus Christ possesses everything and he delegates all of it to us who are Christians or believers. Over the whole world. Uh, and then if you can go on and read the rest of the passage where, again, uh, the saints, look at verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to, it doesn't say Jesus here or the Messiah, but the people of the saints of the highest one. So there it is. It is clear teaching of the Old Testament. The saints, believers, in the future are going to inherit the right to rule over the world. That's what that's talking about. Now flip all the way to the end of your Bible where Jesus gets more specific in Revelation chapter 2. Someday, Christian, you are going to judge or rule over. You will be a judge duty over the world, practically speaking. Well, I can't even judge and rule over my three kids. How am I going to do this? That's a good question. That's why this is a future prophecy. You'll have the power and the ability and you won't have inherent sin anymore and you'll have the power of christ's very presence to do it successfully in the future uh revelation chapter 2 look at verse 26 paul uh jesus is talking to christians and he says the one who overcomes that's an overcomer is a believer verse 26 and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him this is jesus talking to you christian i will give authority over the nations there it is i'm going to give you authority to rule over the world someday in the future verse 27 and he shall rule them with a rod of iron you're going to be given a scepter it is going to be made of supernatural heavenly iron what do you do with it well you're going to use that rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken you're going to smash pottery with it that's the nature of the judgment that you're going to be doing over the world and primarily the unbelieving world probably during the millennium so that's just an amazing truth Uh, we're not going to go there, but Revelation chapter 3 at the end, it says something similar that you, Christian, are going to sit on Jesus' very throne and rule with him. The saints will judge the world. That is our authority. It's in the future. And then he kind of escalates a little bit. Not only are you going to be able to rule and judge over the world in the future, on an earthly level, 
There's also a supernatural heavenly dimension in this, and that's in verse 3. Do you not know, Christians, that we, all Christians, will judge over angels? Isn't that amazing? This is a notch up in terms of our ruling ability and judging authority. Uh, angels, they are invisible, they are powerful, they are supernatural. One angel is more powerful than 180,000 human beings. And yet in the future someday, human beings on earth are going to be elevated above the level, ability, authority, and power of angels themselves. And we will literally rule over Jesus' angels and probably evil angels as well someday in the future. Absolutely mind-boggling. That is your identity. That is your future. That is your legacy if you know Jesus Christ. This being true, if you have this amazing authority and inheritance that is yet to be yours in the future, why can't you Christians take on the smallest petty cases and disputes you have right now in your church? You need to. You need to in light of who you're going to be, in light of the authority that you have through Jesus Christ, your Lord. So that's point number one. Don't sue each other. Deal with disputes in a biblical manner and do it in a way where you're wielding the authority that's been given to you by virtue of being a Christian. And he goes on. This is the second part of the problem, and that's verses 4 through 6. Let's go ahead and look at that. Don't sue each other in light of the incompetence of unbelieving judges, of the unbelieving world. Unbelievers, people who are not saved, people who aren't Christians, they are incompetent to deal with matters of the church. Unbelievers are incompetent and totally unable to reconcile personal and religious differences between two believers. That's out of their domain. If two Christians are having a dispute... I dare say with 200 people, we probably have two Christians here today who are having a dispute with each other on a personal level. What is the main thing they need? They need reconciliation. They need forgiveness. Forgiveness is a supernatural attribute that only comes through knowing Jesus Christ and being bestowed by the grace of God. So if you're not a Christian, you can't get reconciliation on a personal level. You can't get forgiveness in these very personal, intimate matters. That's why it is out of the domain, out of the jurisdiction, of unbelievers. They have no authority in that regard. And so that's the point. They are totally incompetent. Verse, uh, Starting at verse 4, if then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, in other words, you're going to court over petty matters of everyday life, if then you have law courts dealing with matters of this everyday life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? It's another question. You've got these small matters that deal with personal life and probably church life, and yet you're going to unsaved judges outside of the church? Why are you doing that? And then he, there's a point of emphasis here on what Paul thinks of unbelievers. In verse 1, Paul called unbelievers unrighteous. They are unjust by nature. He calls them something else in verse 4. Depending upon your English translation, uh, it's translated about four different ways depending upon your English translation. The New American Standard says that unbelieving judges or unbelievers are those who are of no account the literal greek word is they are despised they are despicable unbelievers in terms of their very nature are despicable and despised from god's point of view by virtue of their rejection of the gospel of jesus christ it is a synonym for being an unbeliever so this translation who are of no account that is very watered down. It doesn't do justice to the Greek word. They are despised. That's a synonym for verse 1 where he says, they are 
unrighteous. As a matter of fact, look at other synonyms that Paul uses for unbelievers. Verse 4 is where we're at. He calls them, they are despised. Verse 2, he referred to them as of the world. The world. The world of it. The lost world, as opposed to the church. Uh, then he calls unbelievers in verse 6, category, just they're unbelievers. They don't have faith in the gospel. Did you know that the failure to believe in the gospel is a sin? As a matter of fact, it is the most egregious sin of all. To hear the gospel of Christ and to reject it. And so he calls them, they are unbelievers. They are not people of faith. Someone who doesn't have faith can't possibly operate in the, the realm of spiritual matters. They're totally unsuited to be resolving your disputes. He goes on and calls them. Oh, and then he gets specific. These earlier terms were generic terms. Unbelievers are, they are unrighteous, they are of the world, they are despised, they are unbelievers. And then he gets specific in identifying what they are like in terms of their lifestyle on an ongoing basis. And look at verse 9. Or you do not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And then he starts naming what unbelievers are like in terms of their lifestyle. Fornicators, that's sexual immorality. Idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, literally soft ones. Those are homosexuals who are passive in their homosexual relationship. That's what the word means. Nor homosexuals. Verse 10. Thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. So that's, those are specific identifications of what unbelievers truly are in their heart and the core of who they are if they're unredeemed. So Paul, one thing Paul's trying to do here is, okay, Christians, one thing that's going to help you is you, your thinking needs to be changed. You need to remember that the authority you have uh, through virtue of knowing Jesus Christ. And another thing that will help you regarding your thinking, you need to diagnose all unbelievers correctly. They are unrighteous. They are despised. They are limited. They have rejected the gospel of Christ. They can't operate in the spirit realm whatsoever. They are lost. And here are the, there's their life patterns right here. They're not inheriting the kingdom of God should they die now. Meaning they're not going to heaven at this rate. You cannot entrust the most dear issues of your life into the hands of those kind of people. That needs to be reserved for the church. So that's Paul's argument here. Don't go outside the church settling these issues. Verse 5, here's Paul's motive in this rebuke. And he's coming down pretty heavy-handed. He says, I say this to your shame. I am trying to shame you. I am trying to, to embarrass you. I am trying to woo you into repentance over this matter. It has got to stop. There should be. There is zero tolerance for Christians suing other Christians in the church. That's the principle. So, and then immediately you think, well, what about if? No. Well, here's the exception clause. No, that's not the teaching of Scripture. At no time should one Christian ever sue another Christian. Categorical, black and white. That's so black and white. Yeah, it is. You think so black and white. Well, the verse is black and white. God is black and white on this. Christians don't sue other Christians. Well, wow, that could have some complicated uh, implications in my personal life. Yeah, it can. Wow, I could, I could lose out and suffer loss if I really applied that. Yeah, yeah, you can. Well, I might lose a lot of money in this if, if I really did. Yeah, you probably will. That's the point. Be faithful to God. Trust Him. He will bless you. He will take care of you. He's the ultimate judge. Lay it in His hands. 
So that's why that was life-changing the first time I ever heard this truth out of Scripture. And then it just changed my thinking forever. Okay, I can't ever sue another brother and sister in Christ. And so sure enough, with time, God's going to challenge your convictions. He's going to challenge your thinking. And there was a time where uh, my wife and I, we got into a situation where we owned a property and we were renting it out because we weren't living there. And we had a, uh, somebody, a professional, maintaining it for us, uh, a property manager. And some shysty, decis- uh, deceiving person got in there and wiggled their way into uh, our property from a distance. And then they decided, well, we're not going to pay rent anymore. And they refused to pay rent. And it turned out uh, they were not screened properly. Background checks weren't done. So it was absolute total negligence on the part of the property manager who weren't paying to do their professional services. And their duties are delineated in a specific contract. And so we're going months and months of losing money. And it's way above and beyond what we could handle. And then, again, this is hundreds of miles away. So I look at the contract and I thought, you know what, we're going to have to recoup our money. I'm going to have to hold the property manager accountable to their job description. So when we start pursuing that, it turns out uh, he's, a, he's a believer, he's a Christian, the property manager. Not only that, he goes to the church that we used to go to and be members of and where we served, and it's a good church. And I know for a fact they teach this at that church and they abide by this principle. You can't sue another Christian. It's like, oh my, we can't sue the property manager because he's a brother in the Lord. Okay, we'll find out who the owner of the company is. So I go and do some research, find out who the owner of the company is, and maybe I'll take up the issue there and plead my case. And if I have to go to some small claims court against the the company as an unbeliever, maybe I can do that. And so I find out who the uh, owner of the company is, and his son used to be in my Bible class that I taught at. It was another, he was a member, he was an elder at another church where Debbie and I got married, where we got baptized. I'm thinking, no way. They, more than the other church, know 1 Corinthians 6, and they will abide by this, and they know a Christian can't sue another Christian. And it turns out, I'm actually personal friends of his entire family, the guy that owns the company, and I didn't even know that. I was like, and so he heard my grievance, we talked, and it was a no-brainer for him uh, that we can't sue each other here. We're not, we're not going to court with this. Uh, Cliff, let's just, can we talk about it, get the details, if we've wronged you, uh, and maybe we can negotiate and we'll come up with some kind of a settlement. And uh, probably both of us will end up shortchanged. And I said, yeah, I agree. And we did. And it was a beautiful thing. And so we lost money. But at the same time, uh, I believe God was honored and peace was maintained in that very important relationship of two brothers uh, that we had a relationship with in Christ. Uh, haven't always done things perfectly, but that was probably the most significant one that we've ever had to deal with personally and Uh, we had to think through it, pray through it. And you have to make a decision at some point where you are going to do the right thing. I will not sue this person because I know they are a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian lawyer, whoa. Because I I taught this principle at a previous church, and after I taught it in the audience was a good friend of mine who happened to be a Christian lawyer. They had never heard this truth before. And they kept slouching down and further in their chair. And they turned pale white. And then by the time I was done, they were on the floor. It's like, oh, do you need uh, to be resuscitated? And we talked, and they said, I've never heard this teaching before. This ruins my entire profession. I'm not going to make any more money. I have been doing, I have been having Christians, allowing Christians to sue Christians for years. But I know what the Bible says. I can't do this anymore. What other profession can I do? I'm not trained for anything else. That was the beginning of a major challenge to their thinking and their entire worldview at a very practical and personal level. And over time, 
uh, they were starting to find out the boundaries. I guess uh, I'll have to limit myself to cases where it's unbeliever against unbeliever or criminal issue or whatever, but it was very difficult for them to, to sort that out. But they were trained totally from a secular point of view. There was absolutely nothing wrong with another person suing another person. As a matter of fact, you go for it, go for the gusto, get all the money you can, uh, destroy the entire reputation of the person you're going against in the courtroom, rip them down, make them, just it's dog eat dog. And that's how they were trained and that's how they thought. This was a major rebuke, not from me, but from the Word of God, and it changed their life. And that's what the Word of God is supposed to do. So in the end, it was actually a beautiful thing. They were convicted and committed to doing the right thing. God, help me. So that's the problem. The unbelieving world is totally incompetent from a spiritual point of view. Let's go on to the solution Paul gives. So instead of suing uh, Christians and taking them to secular courts before judges who can't even rule from God's point of view anyway, uh, there's a solution that Christians should take when they have a grievance or a dispute with another believer, and that is uh, point number three, and that's take the higher road. Don't sue other Christians just in light of the higher road. The higher ethic, the biblical ethic, simply stated, being like Jesus Christ. That's the solution. Well, what if I have been wronged? What if they slapped me on the cheek? What if they treated me unjustly? What if they accused me unfairly? What if they arrested me illegitimately? What if they slandered my name illegitimately? On and on it goes. These are all things that were done to Jesus Christ who did not retaliate. And we are called to be like Christ. But I might suffer loss. Yeah, that's what the Christian life is all about. Right? So, I mean, there's a lot of passages we can look into that. But in terms of the, taking the higher road, let's just go to the words of, in the model of Jesus himself in Matthew 5. Uh, You've got a dispute with another Christian, and it, maybe it's over a money matter. Boy, money makes us funny, doesn't it? You've got all your wonderful Christian ethics and your Bible verses that rule your life, and all of a sudden you've got money matters. Uh-oh. Then you turn kind of squirrely and crazy as a Christian even. And it, it very quickly pollutes our thinking and makes us short-sighted and blind at the prospect of losing out on money or the prospect of gaining more money to our advantage. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and can be blinding and uh, very deceptive. So, well, what do we do then when we get wronged? Matthew 5. Uh, First is this verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. You've got a dispute with a believer, then make peace. Insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men, especially another believer. You have common ground. You are in the same family. You are family members. You have the same Father. You have the same Savior. You have the same Holy Spirit. You belong to the same church. You will coexist in the same heaven forever. Imagine that. Really, I have to? Yeah. You've got to get along then. You might as well get along now. If, if you deliberately pursue peace with your fellow Christian, God will bless you. Don't you want to be blessed by God? I do. Man, I need more blessings in my life. I have a shortage of blessings, and that's because that's my fault. I short-circuit the process all the time. God, I want more blessings. Well, here's one way. Be a peacemaker. And if you're typified by being a peacemaker, the promise is you are a son of God. What does that mean? You, you are giving evidence that you're actually a Christian, a follower of Christ. This is what Christians do. They make peace. They forgive. They reconcile. They don't hold on to bitterness. They don't hold on to grudges. They don't sue other Christians. That is not peace. 
So take the higher road. I want to be blessed by Jesus. I want to be blessed by God. I'm going to make peace. Uh, Jesus goes on again on this theme, same chapter, Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said. What he's referring to? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes have twisted Old Testament teaching, getting you to believe that the Old Testament actually teaches that it's eye for eye in retaliation. That is not what Scripture teaches. That is not what Moses taught. And that's why Jesus doesn't say, you have it. the Scripture says. Jesus doesn't say that. It doesn't say the Scripture says. He says very carefully, you have heard that it was said. Meaning, the Pharisees who teach you today have twisted Scripture. And here's what they have ingrained into your brain. Eye for eye. You know what that is? Sue each other. Sue each other. Sue each other. And Jesus said, that is wrong. It's not about revenge and retaliation and one-upping other people. An eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. But I see, that's the contrast. But I say to you, the Lord Jesus Christ says to you, verse 38 was false. What I say to you is this, if you're a believer, do not resist him who is evil. Wow, don't fight back. Do not resist him who is evil. Well, what if they're trying to take my money? What if they're trying to live in my apartment for free and not pay me anymore? Do not resist him on a personal level who is evil. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek... By the way, these are personal... It matters here. Personal matters. Relational matters. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. The idea, it's not retaliation. That's the way of Christ. Verse 40, and if anyone wants to sue you, there it is, and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Don't even go to court. Oh, you want my shirt? Here's my shirt, and you can have everything else I have too. I'm going to trust God with my livelihood. Verse 41, and whoever shall force you to go one mile... Go with him too. Verse 42, give to him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be the sons of the Father who is in heaven for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same. Wow, this is hard, this is challenging, this is, this is impossible to do, by the way. Did you know that? Jesus is asking us to do the impossible. We can't do this on our own, in our own power, on a human level. Everything about this flies in the face of our natural tendencies and inclinations. We need supernatural ability to fulfill these requirements and this ethic. We need to be regenerate. We need to be born again. We need to be adopted into the family of God. We need to be saved. We need to be redeemed. We need to be made righteous. We need to be made believers. We need the Holy Spirit of God who created the universe and who raised Jesus from the dead to be living in our soul. And that is exactly what God has done for every Christian. You have the Spirit of God living in you. That is his whole point in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 11, where he said, you have been saved, justified, and washed by Jesus Christ through the gospel and through the Spirit of God who lives in you. So you've been empowered and enabled to fulfill this impossible ethic as children of God. That's just the one verse I wanted to look at. The higher road. Go back to 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 7 through 8. Actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another nobody wins if you're a christian suing another christian i don't care how much money you make in court you're a loser you've lost it is a defeat for you you've sinned against a fellow brother you have sinned against scripture 
you have uh, ruined the beautiful picture of Christ-likeness to the unbelieving world. You have marred the image of what Jesus Christ and His love is like to the judge who oversaw the case of two Christians fighting and squabbling. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And when you fight and squabble and sue each other, you ruin that picture for the unbeliever. So that's why you've already lost. You're defeated. You're not advancing the kingdom of God. You're actually undermining the work of the kingdom of God by doing that. Um, That you have lawsuits with one another. Why not? And then here's the reference to the higher road. Instead, Christians, instead of suing each other, why not be wronged? Go ahead, take a lo- suffer a loss and be like Jesus, practically speaking. And again, these are rhetorical questions, meaning Paul saying, why not be wrong? It's a command. You should rather be wrong. And the second one, you should be defrauded instead of trying to defraud a believer in court. The word for defraud there, he uses this three times in this, in this passage. Defraud. It's a specific word. It means to steal. It means to rob to illegitimately deprive somebody else of what belongs to them. That's what happens when you go to court with a fellow believer. If you win, you're not winning. You're a thief because you violated Scripture. Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and that your brethren. So verse 8 is kind of the most important verse in this entire passage. That is the sin they were guilty of. You go to court and you steal. You're a thief. You're robbing each other. And defraud your fellow believer. Don't do that. Instead, take the higher road and be like Christ. Well, how can we be like Christ and take the higher road and fulfill this impossible ethic? And that's why he closes with this 9 through 11. This is part of the solution. You are able to. You are empowered to by virtue of who you are in Christ. That's why he says in verse 9, he's got to give them another reminder. Again, the Apostle Paul is always addressing people's thinking to deal with their practical life problems. I have conflict with so-and-so. I've got this problem here. I've got this behavioral problem here. I've got this addiction here. I've got this. The first thing that needs to be addressed is your thinking and my thinking. And we need to be thinking in accord with the truth of the Word of God, the living Word of God. And it starts there. And so that's why he says in verse 9, or do you not know? Let me remind you. You're, You're going to unbelievers to get judgments on practical daily issues of life when consider again what unbelievers are really like and what their destiny is and what their future is. And one thing that was probably driving this was greed and covetousness and defrauding people of money. So money was probably the motive behind this. Getting money, amassing wealth, getting materialism, gaining an inheritance, and that's why he uses the the word inheritance in verse 10. Inherit. Boy, you want a legitimate inheritance? I'll tell you what to uh, invest in. It's way more valuable than anything you can gain in this earth. It's investing in the inheritance you will receive in the kingdom of God. It starts here here now, but we will be fulfilled in the future. The kingdom of God, that's the sphere where it's all about. That's what you want to invest in. That inheritance, that wealth, that treasure. It's spiritual, it is eternal. Um, So quit going to these unsaved judges, because after all, do not be deceived. The unrighteous or unbelievers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not getting what's really valuable. They live to get what is invaluable and doesn't last. Don't go to them. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Okay. When Paul says do not be deceived, he assumes that many of the Corinthians are deceived. In other words, they are thinking the wrong thing. Christians, can you imagine that? 
there are Christians who actually were believing that unbelievers can go to heaven. There were believers, apparently, that thought swindlers, drunkards, homosexuals, adulterers who have no faith are actually going to heaven. And that's why he says, do not be deceived. Just because they're living all around you in the culture and they're accepted in the culture and they're on television and on the Internet and they're the movie stars and they're ones getting the gold statues and they're the icons of the day that we're all supposed to esteem and bow down to, do not be deceived and misled by that lie. That's why he's saying it. Do not be deceived. This is a command. This is for us as well. We live in the same kind of culture. The world doesn't change. Paul said the world will grow worse and worse anyway. We need this reminder. Christian, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, these are sexually immoral people. And by the way, this is their lifestyle. I said earlier, Christians stumble in every area. Christians stumble in the area of moral and sexual purity. That is not what Paul is talking about. here. He is talking about a welcomed and embraced full-time lifestyle that unbelievers identify themselves by by virtue of their practice and what they believe. That it is okay to be porneia. That's what he's talking about. It's their very identity. These kind of people who are unredeemed and idolaters who worship everything but the true God and Jesus and adulterers, people who violate the sacred institution of marriage all the time in many different forms and ways, nor effeminate, I already said that, these were uh, the passive homosexuals, nor homosexuals, that's the masculine homosexual. Verse 10, nor thieves, these are people that just steal and have no problem stealing. Well, everybody does it. Got to get along, got to do what you got to do. Or the covetous, that's the sin of the heart. Nor drunkards, these are people who just drink alcohol all the time, get drunk and have no problem. They think it's cool. It's fun. It's what you do. Nor revilers, these are people who slander people and gossip people all the time, and they enjoy doing it. Nor swindlers, these are people who try to take other people's money. These people should not inherit the kingdom of God. These people are not going to heaven. These people, if they die in this situation, they are going to hell forever. This is sad. Don't entrust your personal and precious matters to these kinds of people. And it's easy, we we read this list and think, we can get judgmental pretty quick. I'm glad I'm not a fornicator, an idolater, an adulterer, or a homosexual, or a thief, or a covetous, or a drunkard, or whatever. And then Paul says this, to humble them all the more, verse 11. And such were some of you. Many of you used to be just like this. You were lost, you were on the road to hell, Some of you, when I evangelized you, you were drunk out of your skull. You were living a life of sexual immorality when I preached to you. And look look what the grace of God did in your life. Convicted you, softened you, wooed you, brought you to Christ himself. You embraced the gospel. You got saved. You became a new creature. And anybody that is in Christ is a new creation. Old things pass away. All blessed things become new. And such were some of you. That is one of the most encouraging phrases in the entire Bible, I think, for Christians. If you're feeling down and lowly about your sin and how yucky it is, that's actually a good thing. That means your conscience still works. That means the Holy Spirit's trying to point out something or tell you something. But it's in times like those where you need to be reminded of this great truth. Such were some of you. I used to be that way. I'm not that way anymore. God has saved me out of that mess. God has saved you out of this mess. God has empowered you and enabled you to fulfill this high standard and this high calling. And then he goes on specifically of the change that has been made for every Christian. So if you're a Christian today... Man, keep track of all these things that are true about you. You are a saint. 
You are holy. That's what saint means. You are righteous in Christ by virtue of His life, death, and resurrection. You are of the church, not the world. And right here, you have been washed. That's on a very personal level, meaning Jesus Christ and His blood has washed you of all of your sins. And sometimes we get haunted by sins we committed a long time ago. That's been washed. Forget it. As far as the east is from the west, wash it away in the blood of Jesus. So this is a very uh, personal word being used that we're supposed to meditate on and just be ministered to by God. As a matter of fact, when we do communion in just a minute, that one, that's a good truth just to meditate on. I have been washed. I've been washed of all my sin. I don't, it doesn't matter what it is. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me, rising for me, washing me, and continually washing me of all of my sin. And then he uses another word. So not only have you been washed, forgiven of all your sin, you've been sanctified. Literally, you have been set apart for a very specific purpose. You have been called by God specifically and individually to serve Christ all the days of your life in a very special way for Almighty God and His kingdom. So that, that gives you supernatural purpose to life. So that first word is very personal. This one is in terms of purpose. The purpose that God has saved you, to set you apart, to live for Him. And then the last word to use, by the way, these are all past tense. It's already been done if you're a Christian. He uses a court word, a courtroom word, justified. You're, you're, you shouldn't take Christians to court, but God took you to court. The creator of the universe took you to court, and because you believed in Jesus, he slammed the gavel, and he pronounced you innocent, not guilty. That's what justified means. Isn't that amazing? When God the Father looks down at you because you believe in the gospel, all he sees is the glorious, blessed Jesus Christ who envelops you by virtue of your belief in him, and you are now justified. It is permanent. It's a past action. It happened when you believed in the gospel. You are secure in Christ. You can't lose this status and position you have in Christ. It is an eternal gift from Almighty God. And all this happened and all this glorious, wonderful news was, was possible through Jesus Christ in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. And God used the Spirit of God to personally make it a reality in your life where He applied the gospel to you. So as a result, Corinthians, stop suing each other. Change your thinking. Don't be so arrogant and proud. And so we all need to hear the same message. So here's what we need to walk away with from this on a practical level. Don't sue other Christians. Maybe if you have, maybe it's time to go back and apologize. And ask God for forgiveness at least. Uh, don't allow other Christians to sue other Christians if you have any influence in that regard. Give them godly counsel. Hold them accountable. Also remember your authority that you have uh, through your role in the church being a part of reconciling believers with believers. Also maintain a proper view of unbelievers. They are lost. They are unjust. They have no part in the kingdom of God if they die apart from Christ. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Also practically, take the higher road when you're confronted with that situation. Be willing to be wronged and deprived and trust in Christ and God is the ultimate judge to make all things right so that you might be blessed. And finally, you can do all this because of your position in Jesus Christ. You've been justified, washed, cleansed, considered holy, not guilty, totally innocent because of what Christ has done for you. And with that, that is a wonderful way to go in to have communion and be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. So let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be reminded of, as always, of Paul's Revelation regarding 
the purpose of communion for believers. So if you're a Christian, uh, this is the call of God to you. You're invited to be a part of communion if you're a believer. And we, we do this as a symbol, as a metaphor, being reminded of how we recognize we were sinners and we ask Jesus Christ to forgive us based on his death and resurrection. And we keep doing this and taking communion until the Lord Jesus returns in the future. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, no, we'll start at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, so we have bread down here. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're remembering Jesus Christ giving his life for sinners. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's what's going on in our mind as we take communion. We're proclaiming the meaning of Lord's death, the Lord's death and how it applies to us personally. We have forgiveness of sin in him. Therefore, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, so let every Christian examine themselves at the time of communion. And so let them eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, make sure you are right with God and right with other believers or other people in your life. Confess your sin to him and you will be made right. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. He does not judge the body rightly. So it's a wonderful time to meditate in a very hands-on and tangible way with our blessed Lord. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.